become churches. So I got a bunch of Christians gathering together. We're studying the Word of God, um, loving each other, etc. What 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 does it take to take for that to move to a church? And I laid out an answer for you. And in summary, the answer is polity, polity, organization, and under self understanding of what's going on. And so you'll have to go back and look at that. Um, but the whole, the whole enterprise thus far of the congregationalist model and of my understanding of what house community groups and Bible studies turn into churches really has presupposed something all along that no one has asked me about, and I'm thankful no one has asked me about until now, and that is that church membership is a biblical thing. The whole thing, in one sense, I would say, presupposes that church membership is a biblical thing. Now, uh, biblical is an ambiguous word. Okay, biblical is an ambiguous word. It could mean um, allowed by Scripture. Someone says, well, I can do this. Someone might say, uh, this is biblical, meaning it's not something like it's not unbiblical, <laughs> right? That's sometimes what it can mean. Um and in that sense, I think everyone agrees that church membership is biblical. That is to say that everyone believes that church membership is permissible, but that, of course, is not what I'm suggesting. I'm making the further claim, the stronger claim, that church membership is required by Scripture. That's what we're getting at here. Uh, and, and the question is, does Scripture lead us to believe that membership is something that Christians should pursue and not something just as a practical benefit to themselves, whatever practical benefits, pragmatic benefits that may have, but because the New Testament expects it. And so what I want to do for you today is try to make the case that the New Testament supports an understanding of church membership uh, as something that is important and as the normal expectation for a Christian. is important and the normal, not exclusive, ex Okay, normal expectation for a Christian, meaning barring exceptions, and we'll talk about some of those, exceptional circumstances, one should be a member or pursuing member of a church. So what does that mean, though? What does it even mean to be a member? So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to offer as tight of an argument as possible. When I do my systematic theology, I, I dip unashamedly back into my philosophy background. I want as rigorously tight of an argument, premises to conclusion as as tight as possible because there's a lot of sloppy thinking about church membership that I've seen. I've seen a lot of very bad arguments for conclusions I agree with. Okay, I've seen a lot of arguments for church membership where they get to the conclusion is you should church membership is biblical. And I'm like, yeah, it is, but not for those reasons. And so for that, sometimes he will poke holes in the church membership argument and say, oh, see, it's just you're just adopting the policy of the Rotary Club. You know, this is the church. We don't need membership. It's a relationship, not a religion. This is blah, 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 blah. And so what we got to do, we got to get some tight argumentation here. And that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to be offering a minimalist account, a minimalist account, not meaning of minimal importance, key, but an understanding of membership that is of minimal amount of structures or formalities or processes that often characterize people's understanding of church membership, but I don't think you can get from the New Testament. Okay, So when I say minimalism, I don't mean lack of importance. I mean lack of specifics on formality, process, and uh, structure. Okay, 
And what is the fundamental argument that grounds the minimalist account? And by the way, everyone, I hope you have your iPhone or your Bible or something, because we're going to get some readers, because we're going to go through these texts, because I want everyone to see this stuff and not just take my word for it. I want you to walk out of here being able to say, okay, I can defend minimalism. That's my goal. I can walk out of here defending minimalism. Here is the minimalist argument. I have it on the screen. Biblical exhortations and expectations that require an organized corporate body to fulfill imply that Christians should be a part of such body in order to fulfill them. Okay? Biblical exhortations and expectations that require a larger body to even obey strongly suggest that if you're going to obey that part of the New Testament, you had better be a part of a larger body. That's the idea. And that being a part is what minimalism calls membership. That's it. Okay? Any questions about that argument? It's really, I say it's an argument. It's really, there's no premises there. It's really the conclusion, but I'm baking a lot of stuff into it. Does everyone understand that? That if there are, if there are particular expectations and exhortations in the New Testament that it takes being a part of a body to fulfill, then you had better be a part of a body in order to fulfill. It should be fairly straightforward. Okay? Um, so yeah, the minimalist says, well, listen, when you look at the text of the New Testament, there are things that are we are exhorted to do that can't be obeyed simply as an individual Christian isolated from a gathering of Christians. Okay? There are simply things that it's not possible to do. And unless we just choose not to obey those parts of the New Testament... We need to be about being a part of a particular group um, so organized so that we can be living in line with the New Testament uh, commands and expectations there, okay? But before getting into what those are, because that's going to constitute the, 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 the inductive argument for the, this conclusion here, I want to clarify the function of membership on the minimalist account, and that is to clarify who counts as belonging to a particular local church, and therefore who carries the responsibilities and privileges thereof. Okay? On the, uh, um, that is the role in the minimalist understanding of what membership, how it functions. It clarifies as who is the church here, okay? Um, who counts and who has responsibilities and particular privileges thereof, who exercises the keys, in a particular local gathering. Um, uh, and, and so that's what membership is, that's how it's going to function. Um, um, I'm going to skip that part. So uh, oftentimes membership is understood to be something quite different. Uh, in fact, I had one member, one non-member a couple of years ago um, pointed out that they felt like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God when they could not stand up for reading the church covenant. They're like, oh, I just feel offended by that. Now, their understanding, membership was this artificial badge distinguishing kind of the super committed Christians from the kind of standard fare Christians. And so for him, it was just like a, a, like a backhanded insult. And then he became a member, by the way. Just That's how that story ended. But, um, but we, were have to t we had to talk through that. We're like, no, 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 no. That's, that's certainly not what this is. Um, and maybe some churches' membership functions like that, but not on the minimalist account that we're giving here. Someone else might say that that membership functions uh, to test who's really committed and who isn't. 
but that isn't in either. Uh, someone could be super committed to a church and not be a member. Okay? Super committed to a church and not be a member. In fact, we do. We have members. We have people who aren't even, we have people who don't even attend here who tie faithfully to our church. There's a lot of different ways that you can be committed um, and not be a member. Um, you might also think that, that church membership is purely an administrative function. That's the function of church membership. It's numbers, it's names, it's logistics in order for the organization to function. So it's kind of the the long-term, one-time version of the old membership card that you're supposed to sign when you go to like a real big church. You know, here's my name and my email address and my social security. No, you don't spend that. Uh, but, uh, and so, yeah, just for registration purposes, this is like a permanent sign the guest book thing so we can have attendance, planning for the future, etc. A place to send tax return information. Okay, it just a purely administrative function. And again, while I want to say that all of those things, with the exception of distinguishing between a super Christian, uh, super Christian and a not super Christian, that's ridiculous. But there are certainly maybe elements of these things that you could say, okay, that I mean that goes along with membership. But on the case that I'm presenting, that is not what membership is. Again, or excuse me, that's not how it functions. It functions to just clarify as who belongs to a particular local church and therefore is responsible and has the privileges thereof. Okay. All right, so I'm about to get into the argument here. Any questions about the minimalist argument or the function of membership? Does it make sense? Or is someone like raising their hand in their heart, not understanding, don't want to ask? Makes sense? All right. I'm saying I'm going forward, saying it makes sense. Okay. So what are the biblical exhortations and expectations on the minimalist account number one and let's we're going to have some we're going to get some readers here okay the new testament paints a clear picture that christians first are to regularly gather with a group of believers in the name of christ for gospel exhortation and encouragement all right so can i the very famous probably one that everyone's heard many times before hebrews 10:25 and then I kind of have someone read 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 18. These are just representative examples. I have not listed every single text that could be brought to bear for these four main points that I'm going to make to bolster minimalism. Hebrews 10, 25. Who wants to read that in a nice loud voice? Yes, Michael. And then who wants to read 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and 18? Josh. Everyone listen, so you're not taking my word for it. I don't want anyone to take my word for it about church membership being being biblical. I want you to be able to hear it. If you, if you want to, if it, yeah, that's fine. You make a call. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Great. So the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, pushes back against one particular habit, not gathering together, exhorts us to another habit of regularly gathering together for encouragement and exhortation, obviously in the context of Hebrews and light of Christ and the gospel, um, and not to have a football watch party. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and 18. Excellent. 
He talks about a regular pattern of coming together, and when you come together, and by the way, he's going to make another, he's going to, we're going to hear another coming together uh, relative to when they're setting aside the money for the tithe, the uh, contribution that Paul is talking about. He's going to say, set a, setting aside money on the first day of the week, okay? And that's going to be understood, it's understood by almost all commentators, is every time they gather together on the first day of the week when the people worshiped, uh, that they would set, be setting aside that money so that when Paul came, it wouldn't be an exaction and they would all be ready. Y'all remember this having gone through 2 Corinthians, correct? So there is a regular understanding that we are to be at Christians, the regular expectation in the New Testament. And if you see this in the book of Acts as well. I didn't put, the, I put some of the Acts texts further down, I think. Um, this is not to be comprehensive, but there's a regular expectation that Christians are, are gathering with groups of believers in the name of Christ for gospel exhortation and encouragement. Now, notice here that this can't refer to the universal church or the Catholic church with a little c. Why? Because it can't gather. There's no way for all the Christians in the world to gather. It doesn't make any sense. Paul didn't think it made any sense. You don't think it makes any sense because it doesn't make any sense. What What the gathering has to be is not some worldwide uh, uh, billion-person church service. It refers to local gatherings, local gatherings. And number two, on multiple occasions, believers are identified by their association with such local gatherings in the New Testament. So I'm going to read Romans 16.1. Who can read uh, Colossians 4.14 for me? Who can read Colossians 4.14 and tell us about Nympha? Yeah, Asher. You didn't think I was going to call you. You didn't have it unzipped, did you, bud? Go ahead. I don't know why, I don't know why I'm passing the book of Romans. I, don't, I guess I don't know where it is. All right. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of me and of uh, of many, excuse me, and of myself as well. So we're going to set aside. Obviously, there's a ton of speculation, debate about whether the the diakonos word there was Phoebe a deaconess in this in the sense of an officer, or was she a servant? Who cares? But um, well, maybe I shouldn't say who cares. But it, people just people go back and forth about that just so much. It's, it's just a little over the top. But um, but the point here is that she is specifically identified with a particular church. It's not just our sister Phoebe. It's our sister Phoebe linking her to a particular local church. Okay, do we have Colossians four fourteen, Mr. Asher? Oh, uh, what did I say? 414? What? Oh, it's 415. It may be 415. I may have misled you there, Asher Dasher. Laodicea, bud. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. Excellent. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Excellent. 
So give my greetings to the brothers there at Laodicea, which we learn is a church and, of course, one of the churches in Revelation, and then to Nympha, and we learned something interesting, that there was this Nympha is a female name, it's a woman, and there was a church who met specifically in her house. And so clearly, Paul thinks there's a way to tell who to give the greeting to, right? He says, greet the church in Nympha's house, and it wasn't like, oh, we have no idea who that is. It's like, well, how are we supposed to know who the church is? I don't know who's who's part of the church in Nympha's house. Clearly, there's a way to tell who's in and who's out, who's a part and who's not. Okay? So point one here, this is the first point. This is a multi, this is inductive case here for what I'm uh, for the art for the conclusion. Point one does not get you to church membership. Okay? It doesn't. What it does is it gets you um, to the fact that Lone Ranger Christianity doesn't have a foundation in the New Testament and just wildly departs from the normative expectation we see in it. Just the idea that I do not need the church, I do not need regular gathering. Um, I would talk with colleagues at Dell about this when I work there. Um, it's a relationship, not a religion. I've got my own little thing going on with God, and um, it's an individualistic understanding of things. Th- this first point does say that's just not there in the New Testament. The Lone Ranger Christian is just not known to the New Testament. Okay, so let's continue on. Number two, there's a lot of texts in this one. There's a lot of texts in this one. There could have been a dozen more, uh, but in an act of mercy, I made it shorter. The second here, Christians are to be the regular expectation that the the picture the New, New Testament paints, that Christians are to be known and accountable to such a regular gathering that we just mentioned, and are perceived by others as belonging to the regular gathering. They are known and accountable to a regular gathering and are perceived by others as actually being a part of that gathering, not someone who is just passing through. So you see the text up here. We're going to read all of them. We're going to read all of them because I want you to hear this from a couple of different angles. And you can, there are so many here, you could probably think of more if you listen that I didn't even put on here. But let's get a shotgun text reading going on here. So 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. Who wants that? Glenn. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Steve, it's the church discipline passage. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. Auctioning off Josh. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I, I pointed at you and I went over your head. You, were you, you weren't raising your... Do what? <laughs> you don't want to do it? Okay, well, you, you can do it then. I, I feel like I skipped you. Did I not? All right, why don't you read 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 6, 1 through 6. First um, uh, Timothy one twenty. Who can read that? Ding. Yeah, First Timothy one twenty. Third John 5 and 6. Michael, and then Christian, 1 Thessalonians 5.12. All right. All right. Second Thessalonians three fourteen and five. So read it with a little velocity, but with a nice loud voice, so everyone can hear how it's relevant to the point at hand. All right. Fire away, Glenn. Okay. Excellent. So, 
What, listen to what's required for that text to make sense. It's an exhortation to look around you and see who is obeying and not obeying um, what the words of this letter, and if they're not obeying, to take particular action to treat them a certain way so that they feel shame and so that they will actually repent and obey. It's that one of the church discipline passages that always gets... Because that's a funk, essentially what's happening in that passage. There is clearly... People are known... Okay, they're not asking you to go make sure that strangers on the other side of town are listening to the letter. There's clearly an understanding of there are people who are known. There is an expectation of obedience, and there's an expectation that people are looking to their left and their right, making sure that people are doing that. There is an accountability there, and there is a sense of knownness. Okay, number two, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Excellent. So this is the church discipline passage that we read uh, when we were talking about uh, the keys of the kingdom. But look how much look how much it implies about accountability and being known. First of all, I'm to go to someone. Okay, so I actually am knowing individual people. I don't just know of them. So there's a sense of familiarity. There's obviously a sense of accountability. And I am to actually go to them. So I have a, an obligation toward them. They have an obligation to obey. So there's knownness and then there is accountability. Um, and they are, again, perceived as belonging to this group. Why? Because they're brought before the church. Well, what is that? Is that the, are they brought before the whole world, the universal Christians? No, they're not. They're brought before a particular body. Which one? Was it just some random particular body? Well, no. It's the one that they're a part of. Okay? So when you look at some of these questions... In order for a lot of them to even make sense, you've got to have some of these elements built in, known and accountable and perceived by others as belonging. All right? First uh, Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. Okay, excellent. So notice how much of known language, accountable language, defining the church as opposed to outside languages in this particular one, uh, particular passage that is to say, perceived by others as belonging to the church, finding a wise person in the church who can adjudicate things in the church. Obviously, there is a self-understanding of being known and accountable, and there's a perception that this person belongs and can be someone that this wise person might adjudicate a dispute between, as opposed to someone else who's just visiting or something like that. First Timothy 1.20 this is a quick one. All 
All right, so Paul writing to Timothy in Ephesus, these guys were clearly known. They were told to obey. They were made an example of because they did not obey. And he is writing to them saying, I've turned them over to Satan to be taught out to blaspheme so that the other people do not do the same. But the point is these two men were known and they were accountable within that church. These, they were perceived as belonging to that church, which is why Paul mentions them. He's not, getting to, he's not telling Timothy, hey, here are these two total strangers that no one there would even know about, and I'm making a random comment about people on the other side of the world. These are two people who are known in the church, who are accountable, have failed to live up to that, and are therefore being put out of the church. Um, 3 John 5 and 6. 3 John 5 and 6. All right, great. So you have a group of people who have gone out, and he writes to the elder saying, I need you to entertain, uh, entertain these people, uh, give them what they need, and send them along. And he adds an interesting detail that they have actually testified about you before the church. Whoa, that's interesting. So you got a group of people who are associated, uh, con considered to belong. Here's a group of people who are going out and are supposed to be uh, treated hospitably. They belong, though, to a particular church, and they have stood in front of that church as those who belong and testified to them as those who are go they're going to be accountable to, presumably, as they go out. And then this elder is supposed to help along the way. Again, you get the same elements of known and accountable and perceived by others as belonging so much so that they would come back uh, and, and they would give a testimony before the church. They would give testimony before the church about this brother. All right, finally, 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Okay, so again, this is going to be known and accountable, and it switches here to the leadership. We're going to see we're going to see this teased out much further, much stronger in the points below. But the idea is that there's leadership that, in order to be admonished, in order to submit to them, in order to esteem them highly in the Lord, you actually have to be in a particular place with particular people. There has to be some degree of knowledge, some degree of regularity and accountability, and you have to have some sense of ownership that they are your leaders, right? They are your leaders as opposed to some other leaders, as opposed to another church's leaders or another group's leaders. There is, again, this possession, this sense of belonging and understanding that I belong here and these that, that, that um, I can claim these leaders as my leaders, okay? Point two. There are many more passages. You can, again, like I said, you could probably think of them as we even went through it, but the idea is, that again, that the New Testament paints a very clear picture that Christians are to be known and accountable to such a regular gathering that we mentioned in the first point and, and are perceived by others as belonging to the regular gathering. That is, people look to their left and their right and say, yes, you're, you're in with us, and therefore you need to obey the, what Paul just wrote, okay? as opposed to the visitor passing through or the person who's just been there but isn't committed or something like that. Um, okay, number three, number three. Christians are to be under the normal expectation for Christians as they are to be under the authority of church leaders and submit to that authority. Okay, So elders are called to shepherd the flock among them. But again, this can't refer to the whole world, which would make shepherding an impossible task. It must refer to local flocks. So even the command to shepherd, to shepherd the flock among you implies local flocks. And it implies who's obviously the flock I'm supposed to be shepherding. And so when I sit there and I pray for our church, I have to answer questions. I have to ask questions. I can pray for anyone, right? I can pray for my neighbor, an unbelieving 
a, a family member. But when I pray for the church, there's still a question someone could ask me, like, who counts? What, what church exactly? H who? Who exactly are you praying for? And you could probably give a couple of different levels. Like, uh, of, but at the very nitty-gritty uh, the, the nitty level, it's going to be those who are belong to that particular church. All right, two readers for this one. Acts 20, 28. And if you need to make a contextual call about backing up a verse from that one, that's fine. And then 1 Peter 5, 2. I want you to hear this. Who's got Acts 20, 28? Auctioning off Acts 20, 28. Glenn, auctioning off 1 Peter 5, 2. Steve. Excellent. So be on guard, shepherd the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. So the idea is you're going to have elders, which are used interchangeably with overseer in the New Testament, um, who have a flock they are over. And clearly there's folks who are part of that flock and that therefore they have responsibility to shepherd before God as those who will give an account. And we learn in Paul's letters, I didn't include that teachers like those shepherds would be held to a higher standard. And the, and the question is, there is clearly people that they have authority over and that they are supposed to be shepherding if they are fulfilling their duty and people who they are not over and therefore are not supposed to be shepherding. You see, there's a line there. There's obviously an understanding that there's people who are supposed to be the object of that shepherding and authority and people who are not. Okay, 1 Peter 5.2. Who had that one? Okay, excellent. So you're, you get the same point reinforced, that elders are to shepherd the flock of God among them, okay? And that you're going to have, well, actually, let me just pause and say that, that, that being under the authority of an elder and then submitting to their authority or kind of taking a, submiss a submissive disposition are two different things, okay, are two different things. One is subjective based on someone's disposition, Anyone could come in here and, and, and say, well, I'm going to, I'm no, Tyler, I submit to your authority as an elder. Okay, I appreciate that disposition, but that doesn't mean that I have responsibility to oversee your soul just because you have a particular disposition before me. Does that make sense? Just because someone comes in with a particular disposition does not somehow uh, force upon me a responsibility for their soul. No, there is clearly an objective sense where an elder has particular responsibilities to shepherd people and he has an objective authority over people that isn't just based on people saying, well, I feel like what, if you rebuked me, I would, or if you said to do this, I would say, oh, I consider you my pastor. I did this and that. And I, 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 that language is fine. I've heard that a lot. But that doesn't mean, uh, that does not mean that I have, that I'm responsible or, or Ben is responsible for shepherding your soul as, a, as an elder just because you have a disposition of submission towards us. That's not, uh, that's not how it works. There's something more objective there. So obviously this implies membership because it implies that there's an answer to who are elders supposed to shepherd, and it's not the whole world. It's not every Christian in the world, okay? Um, finally, and I just and this is basically what I just said, let's have one person read this though. Um, Christians cannot possibly submit to every elder in the world. So now we're turning it around. 
Christians cannot possibly submit to every elder in the world. The expectation is that one submits to local church elders or their leaders, to use the language that we just heard. Who wants to read that Hebrews 13, 17 passage for us? Who wants to read Hebrews 13, 17? Yes, Josh. Other Josh, sorry. I got it right this time. Yeah. Obey your leaders and submit to them because guess what? They're going to have to give an account. Okay? Someone coming in with a submission disposition doesn't mean that I all of a sudden have to give an account for them. Okay? There's something there that I'm going to be held to. I'm going to have to give an account for shepherding someone and members are called to submit to pastors to elders and so now we're switching around and say is it possible is it is what's possibly being implied that you're supposed to submit to every pastor everywhere are you supposed to submit to elders of other churches for example no obviously we still have this local sense a local sense of belonging a local sense of ownership a sense of submission a sense of uh, submission and we can you know talk about that if we need to more but um the idea is we have a body, and it's not just a body uh, of, of Christians, okay? It's not like a navigator's meeting or a campus crusade for Christ or something like this. This is a body here that is organized in a particular way. This body, in order to submit to leaders, you got to be part of a body that is organized in a particular way with some authority structure, right? There's some leaders. It's not just follow we. It is not just a bunch of people together. So the first, remember, the first point gets us to you can't be a Lisha Lone Ranger Christian. The second point is I'm in a group of people where I'm known and accountable and considered belonging. But someone could still say, oh, well, that's, that's my, uh, my college small group that we meet together with. This point gets you to know it has to be endowed with a certain authority structures as well. You have to be submitting to local church elders, and there has to be accountability before those elders and before a congregation. Um, and we see that uh, teased out a little bit in this. We're going to see it teased out in this last uh, point even stronger to complete the argument. Christians are to be the potential object of redemptive church discipline. The potential object of redemptive church discipline. Okay, so let's read these last couple together. Um, first, I'll read First Corinthians five three through five. Can someone, uh, someone, while I'm doing that, read Second Corinthians two five through seven? All right, let me get over here. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5 is uh, another kind of church discipline passage we talked about when we talked about wielding the keys. For though absent in body, I, the Apostle Paul, am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, presumably that he's rendered his vote. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is pre uh, present with you in the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Similar language to what happens to uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander over in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. This is happening to this brother, and he is seen as the appropriate object. No one's like, well, you can't do that. He doesn't belong. He's obviously seen as being held to particular standards and being in light, being a part of the church. And this person is being put out of the church in an act of love so that their flesh will be destroyed, but their spirit uh, may be saved. All right, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 7. 
Oh, did, I just said someone. Did anyone actually prepare for that one? Yeah, Michael. Now, if anyone has caused, and he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it exclusively to all of you, for such one, uh, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. But you should rather turn to forgive than comfort him, but he may be Okay, excellent. So you have this person who has been put out of the church. Uh, again, it's, and people question, well, is this the guy back from, from 1 Corinthians? Is this the guy back from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that they're restoring back in? Same guy, different guy. Point is, there's a guy here who has been put out of the church as a result of church discipline, and he is saying to restore this person. Obviously, that, that passage, I don't have time to go into it. It implies repentance. It, it, replies, it implies that this person is repentant, and he's saying, do not let that person be overcome with grief. Absorb them back into the fold. Um, and let me just read one more passage. Actually, let me, I'll give you the point first. It is difficult to understand how someone could be put out of the church if there's no such thing as being in the church meaningfully. How could someone be put out of the church? So, for example, when Paul writes, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Therefore, purge the evil person from among you. Okay, church discipline clearly implies some kind of who's out and who's in. Church discipline clarifies that these people who are, who are known and accountable to the congregation, to these elders, are being placed outside of the camp because, as we'll talk about in our next module on church discipline, their public profession does not line up with their public fruit. And as an act of love for the destruction of their flesh and sin, but for the salvation of their soul, we're putting them out as an act of grace in order to have them restored. Okay, This is the four points that establish minimalism. Four points that establish minimalism. Christians are to regular or expected to be regularly gathering with other people for gospel exhortation and encouragement. They're to be known and accountable to a regular gathering and perceived by others as belonging. They don't just show up and say, oh yeah, I'm a part. I'm definitely a part. And everyone's like, no, you're just a visitor. You're not actually a part. We appreciate that. But you're... There is a perception of belonging, known and accountable. They are under the authority of church leaders and submit to that authority, two different things, and are the potential object of redemptive church discipline. And here's what I'm saying. If you have all of these elements, you have membership. That's what I'm saying. Membership, the minimalist understanding here, doesn't care what you call members. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily even require things that almost certainly in this day and age you would have. It doesn't require having people's contact information. It doesn't care about a bunch of formalities. It doesn't say where you have to sign up to serve in the church. It doesn't say that you have to go through background checks. It doesn't, have, it doesn't say any of that. Any of that. In fact, let me just give you a quick example here. We have four minutes. This will, this will work here. Um, I was talking with a, a brother who's a missionary, actually, and uh, he was giving me pushback on the idea of church membership in general. He said, well, we don't have church membership. It's kind of a Western invention, whatever, whatever. And I said, okay, well, let's just talk through this. And so basically what happened is he said, I, I went through these four points. I went through these four points. I said, you have a, you, the people that you're talking about, y'all regularly gather together. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We regularly gather. And there's someone who gives a sermon and we encourage each other. We understand that we even identify as a church. I was like, okay, great. Check. So like point one on there, check. All right, so are these people accountable to one another? I mean, do you, do you feel like people understand that if they see someone sinning, that they have an obligation because they're part of that body 
to, to, uh, to point those things out to them. And there's a clear understanding of who belongs to that church and maybe who doesn't belong to the church, who's, who's, who's uh, you know, uh, um, testing the waters of that church and who's actually in and out. He said, yeah, a- absolutely. It's very clear. It's super, super, super clear. I said, okay. And then I made, uh, do people, do people, uh, is there a pastor there? Is there, and I said leader, because again, it just, I'm going to stay with the word leader, who, who has authority over people and who people understand that when this person speaks according to the word of God, that um, I need to listen, that I need to listen to that person. And I'll give an account to that person who is delivering me the word or who, however y'all have it organized. Like, oh yeah, this guy, I mean, he, he clearly is the guy who people are going to listen to. And he comes in and says, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be. Um, and then finally, I said, uh, do you think that people understand that if they don't walk in holiness, that they, they can't continue to publicly proclaim that they're a part of your gathering? It's just not going to happen. You can't just be comfortable in, in unrepentant sin in your gathering with, and just continue along. I said, oh, yeah, we kicked someone out just the other week because they were and they gave me some story. I was like and I saw so I told this guy, I was like, so what you're telling me is you have membership. That is church membership. That is belonging. The minimalist understanding doesn't care what you call it. It doesn't care if your name's on a roll. It doesn't care what you sign up for. It doesn't care about contact information. It doesn't care about any of that. It cares about these things. If you have now, in his case, um, I will say it's probably a. I would imagine. Well, let me think. Yeah. Well. Uh, um, yeah, certainly in, in this brother's case, the way he achieved membership was a very organic process, was a very organic process. But, um, but, but, it, but at the end of the day, they still had membership. Not a formality, not something necessarily tied to a piece of paper. Now, here in the 21st century, where we have like records, and like you want to be on a church email list, you want to sign up to do, ner- I mean, yeah, you're going to have a name on a sheet of paper and and, and all the rest of it, okay? But it isn't committed, finally, to any church membership process except, this is the last point with one minute left, actually 20 seconds, it'll work. The min- I don't have this up here, sorry, just kind of listen. The minimalist commitment to process. I said minimalism has almost nothing to say about process. We have a process at this church. You fill out a membership application. You have an mem- uh, elder interview, uh, and then we present your understanding of the gospel, why you believe you're a Christian, when you came to faith, to the congregation to review, because we're we, we're, we're congregationally ruled, as we've just talked about, and people are encouraged to come talk to you, and then over a couple of weeks, and then you come in. So we have a process. We also have a new members class as part of that process. Um, we have a process. We don't think that any of that just comes straight off the pages of the New Testament. Like there's a verse that says you've got to fill out a membership application. There's nothing to say about process on the minimalist account, except, except there's one thing. Churches should have a membership process that's geared toward guarding regenerate church membership. That's it. Whatever your process is, it needs to have something to do with figuring out whether people who are wanting to join are Christians. That's the only thing that I think you can get straight out of the New Testament in terms of membership process, okay? All right, guys, well, we are right at 945. I hope that's helpful. I hope that's helpful, again, to, re- to just restate that larger argument. There are certain commands and exhortations in the New Testament that require being part of a larger body organized in a certain way to obey— and if Christians are going to obey those parts of the New Testament, that they need to be part of a body like that in order to obey them. Thanks for the time. Come ask me questions, clarifications. Happy to uh, answer them. But I hope that's a helpful and hopefully a tight 
argument for a minimalist understanding of church membership that I think can be rigorously defended from the scripture. Let's pray. God, thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you that um, you are gathered with us as we wield the keys of the kingdom, as we proclaim Christ to the nations and to one another, that we can regularly gather together and encourage one another. Pray that we wouldn't abandon that habit. Thank you for the awesome responsibility of representing Jesus to the world. We pray that we would bring that love and grace into relationships with one another, with unbelieving co-workers and colleagues. Thank you for this word that reveals your truth. Lord, we do ask you to be with us in a special way during our next hour as uh, the word is preached, hymns and songs are sung, and uh, the Lord's table is observed. In Jesus' name.